Welcome to Humans of Twitter, a podcast where we discover the stories behind the people behind the Twitter accounts. People that are interesting, opinionated, and surprising. I'm your host, Steve Malk, and today I'm speaking with someone who describes themselves as MA, International Relations from University of New South Wales, holder of unpopular opinions, sometimes paid to share them. RT equals smart people, poetry, pro cycling, hashtag MUFC, hashtag go swans. Humans of Twitter is their stories in their words, in a little more than 140 characters. Please welcome today's addition to the Humans of Twitter list, Kimberly Kimbo Ramplin. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm well, thank you, Kimberly. In social settings, how do you introduce yourself? Um, that's a good question. Um, I say, hi, I'm Kimberly, if that starts kind of sounding stupid, I suppose, but um I think that I'm, I'm actually quite, um, it, it depends. Most of the people that I meet now tend to be a lot off social media, like people who are not in my immediate circles of friends or people that I meet through kind of normal networks. Um, mm. So you do have that kind of um, the transition to make where you think you know someone and they say, oh, hey, you're, you're Kimberly. And I go, yeah, 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 um, my name's Kimberly. So I constantly kind of have to drag it back because the people who call me Kimbo in real life are my really, really close friends. So mm. I have 4,000 close friends on Twitter and five <laughs> in real life. <laughs> <laughs> How do you define that close friendship in real life? Um, I... I'm a compartmentalizer, so I have like people that I've known my entire life. So kind of, you know, kids I grew up with who my parents are friends of their parents and stuff like that. And then mm-hmm. I know a people, few people I still went to school with um, and university the first time around. Um, and then kind of each segment of my life then gets kind of broken up. Like I lived in Europe for six years. Um, so I still have friends from there who I'm very close with, even though I I don't see them kind of, you know, obviously maybe for a couple of years sometimes. Um, then with kind of all the different jobs I've had. So from, uh, my kind of almost 10 years in, in politics in New South Wales, I've got a lot of friends who you kind of drift apart from, when you leave politics, but you're still, you know, matey with. And then, yeah, there's just kind of, you know, I think it's a good rule of thumb through life to just always be able to say you've got, you know, people you can count on one hand who you do anything for and, and the people that would do anything for you. Why did you go to Europe? Why did I go to Europe? Um, I went I'd I'd always been very um shall we say independent minded slash headstrong (laughs) from when I was a little kid so um the first time I went overseas I was was the first time I'd been on a plane I was 16 I went to Japan for a couple of months um and then I went to university I I moved to Sydney um from Newcastle via Bathurst I went to university in Bathurst um, and then I you know, had always wanted to go. It was just kind of the inevitable thing, but I hadn't been one of those people 
who'd left school and kind of gone overseas for a year, I just wanted to go. So my then partner and I mm-hmm. saved up a lot of money for quite a while and, um, yeah, we took off for Europe on, on open-ended um, flights and, and we travelled for about 18 months around Eastern Europe and the Middle East um, and then ran out of money in Prague, as you do, um, and, <laughs> and moved to London and then we split up and I stayed. So, I, yeah, I ended up living there and um, came back at the end of 2001. So from, from 96 to 2001 I was away, uh, well, almost 2002. Living in another country is or can be confronting in and of itself, the different culture, all of those things. Having that new experience along with the fact that you're now suddenly single, Mm-hmm. How did you, how did you deal with that? With great aplomb. <laughs> yes. Um, I I'm kind of I'm one of these strange people who really likes change. I thrive on it. I get mm-hmm. quite restless and bored, not bored, but restless, and I'm kind of always looking for what's coming next. Um, it wasn't a decision that I took lightly to break up that relationship. We'd been together for five years, for example, but um, it was the right decision. And, and when I've made a decision, I act on it quite quickly. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, I found myself alone, but I wasn't alone. I had a steady job. I had, you know, friends, not Australian friends. I, I worked in social housing in South London, so I was really lucky to form very good networks of actual actual people who lived in London and not just backpackers. Mm. So, yeah, I did okay. I was all right. Did you have a broad understanding of the world before you left? Oh, I mean, I was 25 when I went overseas. Um, mm. So, but I guess to get to the the heart of what you're asking. I, I mean, I'm, I was a really strange kid and I guess <laughs> for anyone who's met me in real life, they'd say nothing has changed. Um, you know, I was interested in politics and world events from, you know, when I was in primary school. Um, I was born in 1971, I'm incredibly old. Um, and, Rubbish. I mean, I, I remember things like Anwar Sadat's assassination and mm-hmm. asking my mother, was that going to cause a war? And I just remember my mum looking at me like, where the hell did this child come from? Because I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, so even though I grew up in a you know working class, um, you know household in in a bayside beachside suburb of of Newcastle, you know we sat around the breakfast table with parents who read newspapers and, you know, encouraged us more, especially me. I was always encouraged to read and learn and strive, um, you know, and there were never any um, blinders put on me when I was a kid. It was always, you know, do, try your best, do your hardest, just, and and Mm -hmm. a lot of freedom, a lot of intellectual freedom from a very young age. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I loved learning about the world and reading books and things like that, but there was nothing that could 
prepare me for how much I would just love getting on a plane and saying goodbye to Australia because it was great. And I think about a lot recently um, because one of the places I went and I travelled, we travelled independently, so one of the places I Mm -hmm. went and have a great deal of, well, it's beyond affection, was Syria. Um, I spent about a month in Syria in 97 and um, it's just, just beyond, I can't even explain what I feel when I watch the news and, and how I've felt since the, the start of the Civil War in 2011 because I know that a lot of the people that I would have talked to and, you know, had their addresses and, and people who were so kind to me um, would either be refugees or dead or fighting somewhere. You know, it's, it's just awful to even contemplate. I can't contemplate it. What should we do about it? I don't have the answer to that. And I, I can't even, even with my my Masters in International Relations, I can't even, you know, there's a lot of people who are a lot smarter than me who don't have the answer to that. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, you know, I used to be quite a liberal interventionist until that, until that, that philosophy was co-opted by neocons um, and we entered things like Afghanistan and, and, and Iraq. And I don't think the answer is military intervention. Um, mm. It worries me greatly that what's happened in the last kind of seven to ten days with Alan Al- Al-Kurdi's photo um, is that it, you know, I, I, I get, it's funny, I was on Facebook and I said, oh, I'll give Abbott two weeks to turn this into something about stopping the boats and he did it within 24 hours. And I said, yeah. or oh, even worse, bombing Syria and I'm waiting for it. It's coming, I know it. Um, so I know that that's not the answer because they don't have a strategy. There's no end game in sight. You know, I, unpopular opinions, you want one. I think that unless Iran is brought in um, on a much deeper level than we know, I mean, I think they already are, but than we mm. know about, um, then there's little hope for a settlement anytime in in the near future or even in the next couple of years. I don't have any hope of that conflict being settled. I, I just have no, I've got nothing. Do you think that this conflict has the capacity to destabilise, I guess we have to say further, um, the situation around, you know, that Eastern Bloc, Europe and in, in, into the Middle East? Um, I think that the... There's, there's kind of two factors at play here. One, one is the, the huge movement of, of people that we're seeing mm-hmm. at the moment um, through new routes um, and the reaction of some of the, the countries, that you know, the transit countries. Um, I, I think there's, it's going to destabilise the EU, for example, mm-hmm. potentially if, uh, if Germany and Austria keep their borders open 
Um, I think regionally, um, yes, it's going to, you know, it's it's obviously going to cause further destabilisation. Countries like Lebanon and Jordan simply don't have the resources or the room or um, the capacity to hold as many people as they currently are. Um, I interned at the UN High Commission for Refugees in 2009 Mm. and the guy who was then running the Iraq section of UNHCR is a guy called Andrew Harper. And at the time I was reading over my notes because I'm a compulsive writer, I was reading over my notes the other night and um, it's really, it shows you how quickly things can deteriorate. In 2009, uh, in I think it was July I was there, um, Syria was hosting 1.2 million Iraqi refugees. Wow. So that's how quickly things can just turn to shit. Two years later, that country is torn apart by civil civil war. Um, I mean, when I was there, you know, uh, Assad's father, Bashar al-Assad's father, Hafiz, was in power and he's terrible. He was a tyrant and a dictator. But, Mm -hmm. um, of course, you don't see that. You kind of can gloss over the surface. Um, But... (sighs) Now there, there is just uh, in kind of the, the main game, which is the civil war that, that had erupted there in 2011, has been sucked away by the oxygen of, that's been given to Islamic State. Um, I mean, people shouldn't be under any illusion. They, they are creating a state, but it's just hatred and chaos at the centre. That's the centrifugal force of the Islamic State is basically a state of perpetual war. Hmm. What's what's our responsibility? What should our response be, I guess? But what's our responsibility as, as a global citizen? Australia? Yes. Um, I think that right now what could be done immediately is to restore the special humanitarian program for refugees to the 20,000 that it was um, before Abbott cut it back, I think, at the end of the year, last year. Um, That could be done at the stroke of a pen. More what would take, you know, a couple of weeks slash months more planning. And, you know, people who say, well, we should let everyone in, they need to understand that, yes, we can do that, but we have to resource it and plan carefully and appropriately mm. because you're dealing with people with, you know, incredible trauma and, um, yes. you know, there, there are a whole bunch of things. It's not just about money. It's about actually having the appropriate support networks in place for them when they arrive. I think that, you know, the people who are saying we did it when Tiananmen Square happened, we did it with Kosovo, I think that that's the proportionate response at the moment is to take another 10 to 12,000 on top of the on top of raising the special humanitarian program back up to 20,000 um, but but what people are, are kind of not I guess not saying and I'm by no means an expert in refugee flows and things like that but it's not just Syrians who are fleeing who are you who you're seeing on your TVs right now a lot of those people are Afghanis even Pakistanis there are people from all over 
who were going, mm. who, are, who you're seeing in those, on those railway lines and things like that. Um, there are people who are fleeing from, you know, bombs in Yemen, like because the Saudis are bombing Yemen. I mean, you know, the whole place is just an absolute, absolute shit show, to put it, not to point a, a fine, finer point on it. Um, so when we start saying we'll take these people but not these people, you know, it, it creates problems. So it's in, it's an incredibly difficult issue but I think that the immediate and proportionate response for Australia is A, not to get dragged into a conflict any further than we already are because B, we're sending six planes to bomb various targets in Syria really isn't going to achieve anything. The people are fleeing from Assad. You know, yes, they're fleeing from Islamic State, but they're also fleeing, fleeing from Assad. Um, Mm. And unless we're going to start carpet bombing Damascus and and enforcing regime change, which has worked out so well for us in the in the <laughs> past, um, then you know we just have to do what we can. But the most the most crucial thing is that UNHCR has is you know they've raised I think I don't think even a quarter of the pledges that states around the world have made to UNHCR have been fulfilled. So that's why people are leaving Lebanon and, and the camps in Turkey. And, and this is what, you know, people don't understand is that when people go into the camps, they're, they're just trapped and there's nothing. And we're not actually fulfilling the promises that we're making to them on that most basic level. And that's why people are, are then doing, you know, anything they can do to get to, to Europe because, mm. you know, <laughs> They're sleeping outside. We're not even giving them the money that we we not even giving you an HCR the money we said we would give them in the first place. So we need to get our act together as an international community there right now as well. Gosh. Yeah. I didn't think I'd end up talking about international relations, but there you go. It's amazing how these things play out. Should we talk about Twitter? <laughs> <laughs> well, this may be aligned with that. Kimberly, what is one thing you would change about your life today? My life like at this moment or my life history? Oh, whatever whatever alters life for you. Um, I guess that... I'm going to preface what I'm going to say by saying that I don't have um, a problem in talking about it. I don't, it, it's not going to upset me, but mm -hmm. it is a very serious topic um, and people should be aware, um, you know, anyone. I mean, these are things that I've written about in publications, including The Guardian, that I was sexually abused by my grandfather as a child and um, that obviously had a profound impact on my life, um, mm -hmm. my whole life. I, I really don't remember um, my life before that. I was only about seven when it started. Um, so I guess it, it, 
it's not so much would I change it is that I can't remember I can't imagine my life if that hadn't happened but I guess mm-hmm. you know it's it's probably on the scale of things that can happen to you that don't kill you that's probably right up there so yes what would my life have been like if that hadn't happened I guess but I I can't think like that I don't allow myself to think like that in my actual life because it would drive me even more crazy than I already am <laughs> if that makes any sense <laughs> so what yeah. would I change what would I change that that would be easier than that okay we'll we'll keep talking about this first you sure you're comfortable to talk about this yeah no no I am I mean like I said I've written about it um it's you know, I, I think that people are more aware and accepting of um, the fact that people are sexually assaulted when they're children, um, mm-hmm. obviously with the Royal Commission and all of the work that's being done there. But but what people probably are less comfortable in talking about is intrafamilial uh, childhood sexual abuse, which, you know, incest um, and... I think that sometimes, not that I want to be the poster child for, you know, that, but I do feel like I am in a position where I'm strong enough to deal with it openly and honestly and that if that helps someone in some small way, and I know from things that I've written in the past, people have got in touch with me and you know it, it's it has helped them not that i'm i'm looking to you know you, I, you can't save other people i know that but if it if me being open about what happened to me brings anyone some small measure of comfort to say i'm not alone this happened to me even if they never ever speak about it then maybe it does some good how how does young Kimberly process and deal with all of the the strange feelings that come in and of and around this secret that's happening to you? Um, well, if you just go into, uh, you know, I don't think it would be any surprise to people to, to learn that, I went into just complete survival mode, but that just meant I shut down. Um, you, you just kind of have to just shut yourself down emotionally. I couldn't um, let anyone know what was happening. Um, I, like I said, I was a strange kid anyway, so I think I got a, I got around it by being a little bit odd anyway um, so that my behavioural difficulties were just attributed to me being, you know, bored at school or whatever. Um, but, yeah, I, it, you know, it kind of it didn't really impact me and I didn't probably understand it until I was um, a teenager and obviously kind of having your first what should have been my first, it's a terrible thing to say, a terrible thing to say, my first sexual experiences as a teenager 
mm-hmm. than kind of all of the the repressed and really broken parts of me came out and they came out big style. Um, I started self-harming, um, which went on for the better part of, I don't know, 15 years. Um, yeah, you know, so it's you go into a self-preservation mode but eventually there's only so much of that you can do. And I've, I've always thought to myself that we try and encourage resilience among kids um, and, and resilience is a great quality um, but trust me, it is a double-edged sword. You can be too resilient. Um, I still find it difficult to ask people for help um, because I don't want um, yeah, I, I just find I'm I'm not very good at it. I I don't know. And that's just like in normal situations at work, people will say, oh, do you need a hand with this? And I'll say, no, 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 no. Even if I'm drowning in work, mm. I, I'll, you know, I'll say no. It's just to become a default thing. And that's because I just was always, you have to deal with this by yourself. I mean, I didn't speak to my parents about it until I was 30 um, and my grandfather was dead. Mm. Um, so, you know, I mean, it obviously had a huge impact on me. Um, you know, yeah. I had, I had dissociative disorders, borderline personality disorder, which was misdiagnosed originally as bipolar disorder, um, suicidality. I've been hospitalized, um, but the good the good thing is that with therapy and or you know a whole bunch of experiences and eventually stopping being angry at myself mostly um, mm. but also stopping being angry with other people who who couldn't have changed anything there was only one person who could have changed things and it, you know as I said he's dead so what was the point I had to let go of being angry. I was such an mm-hmm. angry person for such a long time and to hide the anger I went the other way and I, I tried to trust everybody so that when when things like relationships broke down or, um, or people didn't kind of, if I, I was so open and honest with people that if they weren't that way back with me and I got hurt, I just couldn't, there was no proportional response I I couldn't you know I I would just lose it and the the good news is and and kind of the the thing I guess that I'm I am proud of myself is that I have now um got to a point where I am really well within myself um I don't have to take medication for anxiety or anything anymore because I've learned Mm -hmm. that you know catastrophizing isn't the best option um I've learned how to have emotions in a normal range which is amazing because and that's the thing about what I was talking about resilience being a double-edged sword because when you are just saying to yourself I've got to keep going I've got to keep going I can't stop I can't let anyone see that there's anything wrong with me you know you can't keep doing it you crash and when you crash you crash spectacularly Mm. Um, 
Yeah, so the good news is that I got help. It worked. I'm never going to be anyone but who I am and those experiences that shaped me. But I am really well within myself and I am a much happier person probably than I ever have been. Kimberly, thank you for for sharing that. I, I, I appreciate it. I hear you saying that you know you're you're in a great place and, and better than you've been and that's that's awesome to hear. I feel incredibly inadequate listening to this, not knowing how to respond in that it's very confronting yeah. and something that is very um, real for you. I mean, my experience is is just hearing about this, reading it in the newspaper or seeing newspaper stories. It's not, it's not this. And what, wow, that's that's not even close to an appropriate response. But yeah, thank you. It's cool, and and I know that. I mean, that's the thing is that it's. It's not difficult for me to write about or for me to talk about, but I know and I do appreciate that it is incredibly confronting and difficult for people to listen to. So thank you Um, and thanks to anybody who's listening to this whenever it's broadcast because um, the other thing is, is that what you're reading about in newspaper articles generally isn't what my experience of childhood sexual assault is. Because because it's just too, it's just too much. Mm. If people are, if this has stirred up feelings or memories yeah. for people, Kimberly, uh, who can they talk to? Who can they approach for help? Um, obviously, um, places like I mean, if this sets off a crisis for anyone, um, mm-hmm. then they they should you know call Lifeline immediately um, or mm-hmm. speak to um, there are there are a number of um, of NGOs and NFPs that work in this sector but the, you know go to a general crisis um, hotline first if, if you are feeling suicidal or having thoughts of self-harm and things like that um, mm-hmm. Because that you know it is anonymous and you will get help, immediate help. But if you are in danger, seek you know go to hospital because yeah. um, that's happened to me twice. And although it was really difficult and horrible, um, I it saved my life. Gosh. Yeah, and and it kind of just just the one thing that I wanted to probably touch on today was um, obviously if anyone does or doesn't follow me on Twitter, they'd know that I'm a, a huge AFL supporter, in particular the Sydney Swans, and I um, mm. it's incredibly distressing as somebody who has obviously dealt with mental health issues um, and I'm also epileptic and oh. I've had drug issues. I've had drug issues. I've had drug issues, so so it's kind of ex- incredibly distressing to see what's being, you know, the kind of the gossip and the innuendo and the the Twitter know-it-alls who are diagnosing mm. Buddy Franklin. And I just, 
you know, my heart just goes out to him. And if I could sit him mm. down right now, I'd say, mate, I don't know what's going on, but we've got you back. And that's mm. the most important thing for people to know is that there will all there will be somebody there who will listen to you, whether they're a stranger or, you know, your best friend. It doesn't matter. Talk to people. Don't shut people out. Yeah, definitely. So, so important. How do you manage your epilepsy? Oh, I just, I, it's really well managed. I haven't had a seizure mm-hmm. uh, in about eight or nine years. Um, yeah, I just take medication every day. I fought against it for a long it's... time, you know, I fought against taking the mm-hmm. medication when I was in my 20s because I put on a lot of weight when I put it on, started using the the medication. So then I consequently used to have seizures a lot, which was, you know, really smart of me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One of my better life choices, stop taking your medication so you can <laughs> have seizures all the time. Mm. Um, while you're taking heaps of ecstasy and, you know, going to dance clubs in South London. Um, <laughs> wow, yeah. that girl's really getting into this song. I, I know. I'm, you know, post-child for good behaviour. Um, but, yeah, so it, that those, that kind of thing, because I've had that kind of triple whammy experience of having the the actual physical issue Plus mm. the and, and epilepsy can you know um, exacerbate or, or cause you know you to not feel mentally unwell. Um, so it definitely, in my case, exacerbates it. Um, and you know, it, just all the other talks swirling around. I mean, you know, leave the leave the bloke alone. You know, just let him yeah. recover from whatever's happening. Um, and yeah. Be, be kind to people in general. That would be my yep. my plea to everyone. I know that, and I know that I'm the biggest hypocrite going because I can be a terrible bitch when I want to be, especially online. God, <laughs> <laughs> as George Carlin famously once said, "Be excellent to each other." Yeah, well, we can. Uh, yeah, we can only try, but we should try harder. Yeah, damn straight. What are you going to achieve in the next 12 months? Um, God, I don't know. I'm going to read a lot more. I'm going to go back. I, 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 did, I went back and did my master's degree in 2009 and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made in my entire life. There haven't been many really good ones, but that was probably the best one. And I did it while I was working full-time in politics so it was a crazy year um and I smashed it out in a year and like I said I I interned at UNHCR in Geneva and that was a really great experience um but I loved the the challenge of it and and you know meeting so many new people and um you know the the mate that I go to to see the swans with week in week out is one of my ex-professors so um (laughs) And, you know, it just that really changed my life. So uh, my dad has been at me and at me and at me forever and a day to do my PhD, but or as he calls it, the doctor thing. Um, <laughs> but I, I can't see myself doing a PhD, but I would definitely like to start reading some more and, yeah, writing again. I've, I've been a bit neglectful in that area. 
so I've got a couple of really good books on order. Um, mm-hmm. Will McCant's latest work on ISIS, which uh, he is um, at will underscore M-C-C-A-N-T-S McCants. Um, he's a scholar from um, the Brookings Institute and one of the great, the great specialists in that area. So that's on, that's on, uh, on order. And um, also another Twitter connection, Ms. Okonga's um, new poetry anthology. So that's coming right at me soon, I hope, from London. Um, but that's the thing about Twitter is that, I, I mean, I joined Twitter in 2009 Mm-hmm. And um, I, I did it, I, I, you know, because, you know, it was kind of a, you know, relatively new thing, I suppose, but mostly because I was studying and, and um, it gives you that ready access to people overseas that, you know, I would be talking and I still do, I'd, I'd be kind of tweeting or talking to people whose work I was reading a lot of the time. Um mm-hmm which just was astonishing to me and, and made everything so much more valuable. I, I mean, I really started using Twitter as, um, as a, a news source and, and a source of being able to talk to people about policy and, and ideas and, you know, I'm an election nerd so I'd be watching elections in real mm. time, um, you know, things like that. And, and then kind of generally evolved into these are the other facets of my personality which are I love um cycling I love AFL um Mm -hmm. you know I'm even on you know how um you've started a Twitter list humans of Twitter and it it actually I I so I looked at it and then I looked at the some other lists that I'm on have you ever done that no oh you must do it because it's actually really funny I'm I'm on I'm on these lists. Okay, I think my favourite was self-loathing racists. <laughs> oh gosh! <laughs> and and, oh. I, and and in that kind of that real white person horrified reaction went, oh my god, what have I done? And then I looked at the the members of the lists, and then I saw. Tenehazy Coates' name, and I thought, okay, this person is obviously a right wing nut job, and sure enough, they're followed by Tony Abbott. So, what can you extrapolate from that, Australia? What can you ask yourself? Um, so, I but I figured that that was because I'd been tweeting about Dylan Roof, the the shooter in South Carolina. So, I got onto self loathing racists. Um, I don't know how I got onto One Direction fans though. <laughs> Because I have, please. I don't. I don't actually know anything about One Direction. Other than other than I think one of them left. Yes, and here's a little bit of extra information to help build your One Direction repertoire. They're taking a break for twelve months. Oh, okay. Well, maybe they can, you know, have a gap year or something. Solve the Syrian crisis. Exactly. Um, I'm on the Australian Open top posters 2013, but unfortunately Kia has have not offered me a car, which is no use to me because I can't drive. Mm. Um, they didn't have ever offer me a corporate box. That would have been really good. 
Um, But more disappointingly, I didn't make the 2014 or 2015 lists and I don't know if they didn't have them or not, but I was pretty happy to make that one. I suspect a change in social media manager. (laughs) I I have had a look at a couple of the lists and I do because I get a bit nosy sometimes. I don't dive too deep. But it's also because I look through my Twitter list membership that, that I'm on and most of them are media, media sources, you know, I, I, I have kind of set myself up as a one-note pony. Yeah, see, I'm, like I said, I, I compartmentalise my life, but I'm so, I think that's the thing I really love about Twitter is I get to be all of those different parts of me. And mm. um, somebody, like some people have said to me, oh, can you start a different account for, you know, when you tweet about sport. And I'm like, you know what? No, like this is me. This is the entirety of me. If you don't like it, you can leave. Here's the hashtag, mute it. Yeah, so that's why I I do when I, and I know that um, I drive some people crazy when I start tweeting, live tweeting AFL games. But um, I will give out out people, I will say, you know, here's the hashtag, mute me, do whatever, but don't whinge at me. Because yeah. there's there's no one there's no one holding a gun at your head saying you must follow Kimbo. Oh, there ought to be. It ought to be a rule. You know. It ought to be a rule. <laughs> there is a new rule decreed today. <laughs> oh, look, well, let's not even get into it. Uh, Kimbo, obviously yeah. you are on Twitter. What I other am. social accounts do you want to own up to? Uh I'm I'm on Facebook, but I'm starting to believe that you should never cross the streams. Facebook mm. was kind of just for my family and friends, but there's a couple of people from Twitter who've crept on there, which is cool. They, they tend to be, or they mostly basically are people that I've met in real life and I actually like. So, mm. um, But I, I do get the odd kind of friend request and I feel really, oh, geez, I don't know how I feel about this because this is for me to look at pictures of my nephews and what have you. Um, mm. So I like really like Instagram. Um, it's it's kind of got that hybrid appeal of you can still, you know, see and figure out what's going on with famous people, but you can also, you know, I start taking photos. I've become one of those terrible people who posts what they're eating for dinner. Remember, remember when we used to go out and eat food and talk to our friends instead of photographing it and, you know, tapping the way I don't recall this time. <laughs> so, I don't yeah. understand the time you're talking yeah. about. So, so I do, yeah, Instagram. And I, 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 I got into kind of checking in on Foursquare and, and all that kind of stuff when I was in America a couple of years mm. ago because everyone there, that's how they find people. They find their friends by saying, I've checked, I'm checking in here and you look on your Foursquare and you get an alert saying so-and-so is at, you know, this hotel and you go, oh, I'm around the corner, I'm going there. So and some American friends put me onto that. Hmm. Now I do it more out of habit than anything else. Uh, what else do I use? Uh, you know, I, I blog. I, I have a Tumblr but I, I haven't used it for a while. Um, hmm. So, yeah, it's mostly Twitter's the the main game for me anyway. And it's mostly, yes, it's to have conversations with people and um, stuff, but it's still at the core is that news kind of now 
aspect and it's not about okay I'm I'm first with the news or you know here's the the breaking new hot take whatever like that but just to gain kind of a you know a multiple amount of sources and things like that isn't quite invaluable in in a fast-breaking news story especially um you know Mm. and if and especially if you if like me you'll be interested in in um an issue or a conflict like Cote d'Ivoire which you're not going to see on the news in Australia you're just not it's not going to appear it might get a you know five seconds on SBS if you're lucky um and I just happened to be interested in it. So when that conflict flared up, um, I set up, you know, a special list for that um, and, yeah, parlayed my terrible French into learning more about the conflict and what was happening and, and the situation was changing there on the ground very rapidly. And Twitter was really good for that because you could get the the francophones um, with, you know, adding, augmenting, what was coming out of the the Western reporting. Well, thank you, Kimberly. You are incredibly valued and what you have shared today is very important and uh, you're a very important person. Thank you for sharing that. If anybody does feel the need that, that to talk to someone as an outcome of this podcast, uh, because it might have stirred up feelings or memories or those sorts of things, absolutely do contact Lifeline. Their number is in the show notes. Uh, talk to somebody. Don't be afraid. As Kimo said, if you need to get help, get help, please. This has been Humans of Twitter, and I can confirm that at Kimbo underscore Ramplin is indeed human.